Welcome to the Core Kinetic Podcast. My name is Ben Cormack and I will be your host. The Core Kinetic Podcast aims to bring you clinically relevant information on topics throughout the clinical world. Also, some very, very special guests along the way bringing you their expertise. We hope to deliver this with fun, flexibility and also some good, solid, old-fashioned evidence. Nothing in this podcast constitute medical advice, but we hope you enjoy it anyway. So, welcome to episode eight of the Core Kinetic Podcast. Um, My aim with the podcast is always to try to do one a month. Um, I've actually failed dismally at that, like most things that I set myself in my life to do. Um, I tend to, to not quite achieve it in the way that I want to achieve it. So we've had a bit of a, a, a longer gap than I would have liked. Um, and actually, I'll be honest, I was waiting for some inspiration of who to invite on and who to chat to. And I got that in- inspiration in the form of a tweet delivered from heaven itself. Um, and so this week or this month or this episode, however you want to break it down, um, I have Greg Nickel on to come and chat with me and so first I'd like to say welcome Greg thank you for coming on and secondly just let us know a little bit about who you are and and what you do and, and those type of things. Yeah thanks Ben that's um, that's really kind of you um, I'm, I'm, it's really nice of you to uh, ask me to come on to speak and it was a bit of a hard act to follow looking at your previous um, conversations that you'd had on the podcast that was the first thing that jumped out um, <laughs> And I guess the, the initial thing I thought was, I'm not really an expert in anything and this is going to be tricky. How am I going to manage to talk about something with enough value? But um, yeah, so I guess my own background is, as you won't be able to see on a podcast, is that I've got a few different roles and currently I'm in an outpatient clinic in uh, Woodend Hospital in Aberdeen. So I guess my, my job title that maybe encompasses most of the roles is GP with special interest in orthopaedics. So uh, that means that my my main jobs at the moment are um, that I work in outpatients in orthopaedics in Aberdeen, and I've got a couple of different roles there. So I've got, I have a few clinics a week that'll be kind of general orthopaedics. Hopefully these will be patients with um, kind of non-surgical problems, but if they have, if they do eventually need surgery, having worked here for quite a long time and had good relationships and good support from the consultants, I can list patients for some procedures such as sort of knee replacements, hip replacements, arthroscopies, um, these kind of things. Um, And that's that's evolved over time with, as I say, a good relationship. In the department as well, I've also got a kind of collaborative role where we work with primary care, so GP practices and secondary care, the the hospital here, where... uh, it's a kind of link role where we, we try to use sort of referrals as more of a dynamic document so that we can kind of go back to the referrer and maybe offer advice rather than offer an appointment just to give that advice after they've had a long wait for it. We might try and organise scans, blood tests, and we might reroute the referral if there's somewhere more appropriate for it to go. So it's a couple of different roles in the orthopaedic department. Um, and it's, and I suppose it's it's very much informed by my past training and work, which I continue to do as as a GP in Aberdeen. 
Um, so I do that. I'm just one day a week as a GP now and three and a half days a week in orthopaedics. So I'm also a team doctor at Aberdeen Football Club. So I've done that since the 2007-2008 season. Game this weekend against Rangers at Ibrox. So um, that'll be good, yes. Looking forward to it. And um, I guess the other main sport role that I have on a regular basis is working in, in boxing. So only amateur boxing. I don't work in professional boxing. And I do sort of medicals for, for uh, boxers there, work ringside. And at the moment, I'm kind of do, doing a wee bit of work with them with regards to uh, a toolkit to increase inclusion for, uh, I suppose, a bit of a passion of mine. Um, I, I think boxing is an amazing sport for a number of reasons, but inclusion in this context, for specifically thinking about those with a number of things like disabilities and autism being a big one for me. Cool. Um, I don't know if you know this. But I'm, I, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big boxing fan. I've been boxing since I was young. That's kind of my. Sport. Oh, no, I didn't know. Oh, uh, my sport, my passion. I'm a, I'm a horrible oik from South London, and that's what we uh, tend to fall into in in the, uh, you know, in in the urban jungle. It's the, it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's a bit cliched, I suppose, but it's something that I've been involved in from an amateur and a and a, and a professional uh, standpoint. Not not boxing professionally, but in working within it. Um, and also I still go to my amateur boxing club a couple of times a week or three times a week if I can, but obviously I'm missing that at the moment. And the only thing open, uh, to me is going running, which I, uh, hate would be, would be yes. uh, probably the best, the best expression that I could use. It's a good learning lesson for getting people active, you know, that you get out there and do yeah, it's not the same as punching things, is it? Yeah. So look, what I think is great, actually, Greg, listening to you and all your different roles is it reminds me a bit like of reading a paper, you know, where you have a really, really broad inclusion criteria because it means that it's very, very generalizable to a wider population. I think probably your opinions and the way that you work and the way that you view things are going to have a wide generalizability um, because of, you know, working in uh, kind of an orthopedics role, a GP role and a sports medicine role as well. So look, we have a really, really kind of generalizable opinion, I think here, which is, which is fantastic. Um, and don't worry about not being an expert. I've managed to kind of bluff my way through my career, not being an expert at anything. Um, so, you know, I just think that's totally par for the course. Right. So look, let me, uh, let me just kind of uh, go to this tweet that really kind of uh, interested me. And one of the things that interested me uh, about this tweet was it, you know, it didn't come from, you know, a, a muscular skeletal therapist, you know, like a physio or, or an osteo or a chiro or whatever. Um, it came from, from, from a doctor. And we could say that, you know, my perception of, of, of doctors tends to be a little bit more, uh, you know, around diagno diagnosis and pathology and these type of things. And I do apologize to anyone who, 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 who that offends, you know, my apologies up front. Um, I've offended enough people along the way. So just join the back of the queue. But it's the tweet read, do we feel we have to give a firm tissue based diagnosis every time? It's not what every patient wants or need. So, so my question to you, uh, Greg, I suppose it's not really a question. It's a bit more of an expansion. So could you expand on, on that, on, on however many characters uh, that was or, or a tweet is and just kind of, you know, give us an idea about how you view uh, the concept of um, diagnosis, giving a diagnosis and patients may or may not needing it. 
Yeah, so, I mean, that tweet's gone viral, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's got 13 likes now. So, I mean, it's just, it's broken the internet. Well, it inspired um, me, mate. It, it, you know, I, I resonated it, it, from, it, this, from this perspective. That's, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I, I suppose, and, and this is maybe something we'll come to, I probably didn't realise when I, when I wrote that that there was a kind of discussion in inverted commas maybe going on in social media about um, the, the, how you diagnose things and how you approach treatment coming from different angles. Maybe it's a kind of yeah, the, the tissue-based sort of diagnosis versus the, maybe the management of the, of the problem that the patient's presented with. That, you know, and and there's, there's a lot that that debate and discussion's been expanded with. But maybe to sort of contextualise it, it's, it's probably... I, to, to explain that that was in a orthopedic outpatient clinic where I guess in a, in a typical day when I started doing that job it was basically a job to do injections so I was doing hyaluronic acid injections and I've done I've done thousands and thousands of injections so it started off being that but as, as times moved on a little bit, start, because of, as I said, the nature of the role, I've started to see more maybe general musculoskeletal conditions that are maybe referred into orthopaedics. And because I'm the only GP with special interest seeing patients in orthopaedics, sometimes if there's a, a layer of maybe kind of biopsychosocial complexity that goes with it, often these patients would end up at my, my clinic, which to be honest, I, I feel suits me because I, I kind of relish the gray areas. I think the gray areas are the most enjoyable parts. Good man, me too. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good, it's good fun. And, and, I, and, and I guess maybe, maybe it's because it's fun that that was part of the reason that I put it there, that I'd enjoyed that day. And I didn't get the impression that because I hadn't come out of everything and said, yes, here's exactly what's wrong with you and here's what we need to do with every single patient. No one seemed to be dissatisfied about this. So um, I wrote down like some of the patients that I'd seen. I went back and had a wee look at it. Um, obviously nothing to identify any of the patients and I'll, I'll, I'll change some details. Protect uh, the confidentiality. Yes. Um, but having seen a, a, a very tall chap who'd come in with a report of an X-ray about um, some degenerative changes. Now, as you know yourself, um, X-rays often show sort of degenerative changes in knees in particular, and there can be these kind of features. So as we know, if we just X-ray knees, we'll find degenerative changes. So I'd seen this chap who'd been reported as there were loose bodies visible on his X-ray. And basically, th this was a really tall man with what weren't really loose bodies. They were opacities. So I think it had been interpreted as loose bodies. Right. Opacities that had come about as a result of Osgood Schlatter's, presumably when he was younger. Yeah. Um, so he came in and we were talking about the, the various aspects of the, of the pain for this chap that he'd had. And, and then ultimately we were saying, well, your X-ray, there's not an awful lot to see on your X-ray. So some of the discomfort you've got is likely to be essentially the, the key word I suppose it's it's multifactorial and then there's going to be this massive grey area that I suppose I'm always trying to minimise which is why I felt that I might enjoy that grey area but it's only comfortable to move within the grey area if you've done a really thorough assessment of the patient mm -hmm. so that the, the area of uncertainty where you might not know exactly what we what, what is going on or you might have a really good idea of the main cause of the patient's symptoms you have to be able to acknowledge that there's an area that you don't know 
And that, as you say, is maybe a wee bit of at odds with how doctors generally work. We're kind of living for the diagnosis, if you like. It's like, oh yeah, if I found out there was an x-ray, I thought there was something really bad on it and it was there. Oh great, I did my job well. Well, actually someone's got something really bad wrong with them, picked up on x-ray or, or scan or whatever. But there's that kind of vanity that goes with making the diagnosis, which I think some doctors can kind of feel as their raison d'etre for um, being, being a doctor. So th there was this chap where we were trying to explain that there was more to the symptoms that he had had that had kind of troubled him for years than just the x-ray he'd been referred about. Um, again, another knee patient, it was a lady with fibromyalgia. So if she was coming in and saying to me that she'd been referred to orthopedics because her, her, her knee was painful, and yes, we could look at her knee and examine her knee and find she had a sore knee, but she wasn't just coming to her GP saying that my knee's sore. She was describing a, a, a range of kind of functional impairments. So by her talking about her functional impairments, there's more to me addressing her desire to get functioning than just focusing on her knee. So it could be a very, very quick consultation just to say, Yes, you've come in with a sore knee, and that could be a kind of fibromyalgia trigger point on your medial knee. You might have some joint space narrowing there. Yes, absolutely. But unless we step back and say there's a bit of maybe a bit of uncertainty, and we don't want to just say that it's all about the tissue diagnosis of, yes, we can confirm that in the context of all these problems that you've got, you have got some minor degenerative changes in your knee. If we don't address those wider issues, I, I don't think that we've really done the job properly. And if she'd left the room, a bit like I, I put in the tweet here, if she'd left the room thinking that, yes, I'd been to see the doctor and he told me that, yes, you've got this on your knee, I don't think she'd have actually made that much progress. So it was more about we had to have a look at the other issues that were affecting her. They were probably more important than, than what an x-ray showed. Yeah, so I mean, I think what I hear from from what you're saying is, you know, it's not just dealing with people from your perspective isn't just about, you know, it doesn't start and finish with, with a diagnosis. You know, it's, uh, you know, you can find out what's wrong with someone from from one aspect. And, and I suppose that is the biopsychosocial approach, isn't it? That, it? that is the biopsychosocial framework, that it's not just about, you know, the the, the problem. You know, and, and George Engel would have called yeah. that the disease. You know, it's more about the kind of illness and what goes around that disease as well. And, I, you know, I think that sometimes, you know, we uh, we forget that in the in the kind of larger picture that still involves um, kind of the diagnostic element or the or the or the yeah. tissue based element. I, I think we've got to a point sometimes with the biopsychosocial model that we see it as, you know, it's either tissue-based or it's psychological or it's social. And we've kind of separated those parts. And if you find, you know, a biological or a, you know, a pathological driver that suddenly everything else disappears. But what I hear from you is, is that you're saying that that probably isn't the case from your perspective. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think so. And it was almost trying to help her to shift the focus and say, actually the best value that we can get out of your appointment here um, is maybe trying to address the impairment that you went to the yeah. GP about, the kind of wider issues affecting yeah. your life, that one of which was the, was your painful knee. And your GPs quite sensibly thought you actually do have an issue with your knee. So it was maybe kind of doing the opposite of what she expected, which was, I'm going to see a, a, 
you know, a specialist clinic, if you like, I'm going to an outpatient department and maybe saying that, no, well, I'm, I'm quite happy if you're happy to put this into context and say, you know what, we've got, we've got time here. Let's not just focus on this, um, what the appearance is on your, on your x-ray or your examination findings, because that's, that's relatively easy to do. But if we can think about how we can get the best value out of your appointment and make, make it that you can go away from here thinking that someone's genuinely listened to you and listened to how the, the problem that you've got has impacted on your life in the, the widest possible way. And that biopsychosocial, I don't think it's like, okay, I've ticked off bio, I've ticked off psychological, <laughs> I've ticked off social by asking you what your job is. It's, yeah, I think yeah. it's genuinely sometimes just sitting back and just up just don't say anything which we're both failing to do at the moment obviously yeah. um but <laughs> yeah so I, I think it's it, it was actually just sitting there with this lady and when, when we get trained as gps we sometimes talk about this golden minute the kind of first minute of the consultation where the patient will will just talk but i don't think you need to cap that time and we i think it's really really tempting to kind of look at it and say I'm listening to you and I'll pick out the bits of information that contribute towards making a diagnosis or how the treatment options are going to impact on you. So the bits I'm looking out for is will an inpatient stay affect you because you're a carer for your wife or whatever, these kind of things. And we, it can be tempting to pick the bits that we think are really important for our speciality. But I, th I think maybe I've come to realise that if the patient's telling you it, they could have waited months and months. They've prob probably already prioritised some of it. And maybe every single bit of it matters. And the bit that we think matters, the what does your x-ray show and how can we change how you perceive the pain in your narrowing of your medial compartment is probably something that we do need to acknowledge because that's what they've come for. But if we don't do something about the other bits and almost prioritise them, then we're not going to make any improvement. Yeah, I think we, we like to approach these things sometimes as kind of binary. So it's not whether a, pa a patient needs a diagnosis or doesn't need a diagnosis. It's whether a diagnosis is sufficient to help this person sometimes, I think, that, that's the big yeah. deal. You know, you could give a diagnosis or, you know, a, you know, a working diagnosis or assessment findings or however you want to phrase it, um, but that goes no way towards actually helping that patient in front of you or, you know, finding out what some of the wider implications of that are. So, you know, I think, that, again, that comes back to that, you know, we, we've uh, we found a bio problem, we'll tick it off, we've got a diagnosis, so everything else is excluded. You know, I think sometimes we approach the biopsychosocial model as one of exclusion, find a problem, there you go, off you go. And actually, it's much more for me of an onion skin type of thing where we may have a, a problem yep. and then it layers on top of how does that affect this person in a number of different ways uh, across parts of their life. Um, so... Do you, would you say that was fair then to say that, you know, maybe it's not about whether it, whether we need a diagnosis or don't need a diagnosis? Maybe the question is really, is a diagnosis sufficient to help someone? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose I want, yeah, I, I don't want to completely kind of write off the exact wording of, of what I put there, because if we go back to maybe the, the knee analogy, because I do see lots of patients with knees. If we see someone, you know, the kind Most of... I would Quite say the majority of your patients will have knees. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, but they, they don't all have two knees. So much, yeah. <laughs> um, so, 
<laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess if, if we see these, uh, you know, the kind of not too uncommon presentation of somebody in the 30s, 40s and 50s, where they've got something like, again, maybe this kind of narrowing of the medial compartment or maybe really almost nothing to see on the x-ray, but maybe some tenderness in that area, some pain, clicking, get sore if they go running. I, I would say that's maybe a good illustration. And I, there were none of these patients on that day. But that's the type of thing where I'm not sure if it's the priority to say to these patients exactly if they've got a meniscal tear, if they've got age-related change, if they've got, if they're truly tipping into osteoarthritis. I'm not sure that the diagnosis is the most important thing. If we've got a limited time with a patient, I almost wonder if it's more useful to say there's a number of things that could be going on here. And I'm saying that without without really any uncertainty about it being something more sinister, because it's a little bit strange that we have this difficulty in giving people a reliable tissue diagnosis for so many things, but with red flags, we'll be absolutely definitive and we will say yes or no. And we will think that we are right one way or another almost 100% of the time. But if we've got these kind of tender knees and this kind of young middle-aged people in towards el, el, young elderly, if you like, um, it's probably a, a bigger focus to make sure that we're addressing wider issues, I think. And almost the diagnosis as to exactly what's going on inside their knee. I don't know what you think, but I'm, I'm not sure that's that important. Well, it's sore. I mean, let's try and make it not sore and let's try and protect it for the future and give you as much understanding about it so that if you need to come back, it's because it's not because you didn't understand today or haven't explained it or haven't helped you. It's because there's really something else that we can offer. Because I'd like you to leave here empowered to sort of self-manage it and not feel as though it's a, a slippery slope and, and, and be comfortable with that uncertainty. Well, I suppose you could say, regardless of what you tell them as, as a diagnosis, you're still going to want to create a scenario where they do leave and they're empowered and they have an ability um, to self-manage. So I suppose from that perspective, it, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is because you are still going to address those limitations and issues that these that, that these people have. So look, I think it is important though. I think sometimes, you know, when we say about uh, specificity of finding out what something is, um, I think we can sometimes forget that that's the end of a very, very specific process. So I don't think we should yeah. ever see, you know, someone turning around and saying, well, I'm not exactly sure what this is as me just, or you or anyone just turning around and saying, we're not sure. It should be the end of a quite specific process, if that makes sense. So, you know, yeah. so, so uh, and, uh, for lower back pain, for example, uh, uh, you know, it, it, and for knee pain, you know, if you take patellofemoral pain, for example, that is pretty much a diagnosis of exclusion, isn't it? Is that you exclude all the specific things that you could relate to other structures. Um, and then at the end, you, 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 your index of suspicion is going to increase that this is patellofemoral pain, which really is just knee joint pain, isn't it? Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of the most non, it's the most specific, non-specific diagnosis in the world, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, again, going back to what I said in the tweet, I think that's that's a good example because yeah. if you could have a patient coming in and saying, um, I, and as, as, as you'll find, as you, you know well yourself, low back pain and patellofemoral pain, they create a lot of uncertainty, partly because there's this kind of 
huge significance maybe in society attached to what does the MRI show, what does the X-ray show. And for both of those, it's quite often nothing very valuable. Yeah. So if I guess if these patients are there and if you can say to someone with patellofemoral pain that, you know, I'm not able to tell you exactly the structure that's causing the specific pain that you're describing, but they will know that I've looked at their notes before they came in. I've looked at the x-ray there just now. I'll have thoroughly examined them. So that area of uncertainty, we've tried to absolutely minimize it. So I think it's actually quite a, a valuable thing to be able to say to people, and maybe we're doing ourselves a discredit by saying it. we're just calling your knee pain patellofemoral pain because they could just say, well, that's what I came in with, a sore knee. Yeah, so I, I told you that. <laughs> yeah. But if we're able to say to you, well, actually, your, your, your knee is sore, not because there's something wrong inside your knee, but because some of the forces that are going acting on it are causing it to be uncomfortable. But, and the phrase I kind of like to use is, you've got something to work with. It's all really, really modifiable. And that cognitive part of patellofemoral pain, where we're reassuring an absence of a of an abnormality on the X-ray, because it's often just an X-ray we have, and I know there can be findings of scans that can that can tell us things as well. But often with just an X-ray, it can be completely normal. If we've got nothing else that's concerning us, I think it's probably quite empowering just to say to the patient, "Well, hopefully we've given you a good bit of reassurance here that, that there is nothing you need to be worried about, and you just need to press on here." And here's some things that you can start with now. And I don't want to medicalize this too much, but I might start you off with some suggestions about activities. And as then as, as we spoke about on the phone uh, last week, then maybe going for some specific targeted type activities under the guidance of a physiotherapist. And then hopefully the combination of a number of clinicians singing from the same hymn sheet, all agreeing that there was more to this than just saying, there's nothing on your x-ray, don't worry. We had to explain why you don't need to worry. Yeah. And then we, 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 we can work with the patient there because if we think about that, I've got something on my knee that's causing me pain. Let's do an x-ray to find out what it is and there's nothing there. That could be quite worrying, I would imagine. Well, yeah, I, I can't remember who studied that. I think it was Tamar Pincus in her paper on reassurance talked about the idea that people get an MRI to find out what the problem is. And when there's nothing on the scan, but the problem persists, actually that creates another layer of worry. Do you, you, you see what I mean? It's like the idea is we find something, we fix it, we see it on an image. And then actually when the problem isn't solved, then you've created another layer, haven't you? Because the MRI can't find it. So if the MRI can't find it, then what is it? Where is it? What's going on? Um, and, and I think we don't talk about that enough, actually, that, you know, that, that we they are given sometimes to, to rule things out, to reassure these type of things. But if the problem persists, that adds another layer of complexity and diagnostic uncertainty and all these other things. And there was the very famous yeah. nurse, Michelle, um, who talked about, you know, how stressful diagnostic uncertainty is is for people. So, you know, a process of quality assessment narrated with a really, really good um, positive narrative, if you can find a positive narrative, of course, that involves exclusion, that involves things that we can do, self-management options. You know, for, for me, that sounds like for a lot of these problems that we can't define very well, a really, really good way to practice. I think it can be really tempting to kind of, you, you've probably heard these as well. I think when, when you're training or when you're, uh, when you're in, having worked in a number of different settings and it's kind of like, what does the x-ray show? You know, what does the scan show? 
And as, as you mentioned with low back pain, the, the only adults that don't have, as it were, inverted commas, abnormalities on their MRI of their back are people that don't have backs. So, you know, <laughs> it's there, there's stuff there. If you do a scan, you'll find a thing. Yeah. So we need to redefine yeah, find something. And it's and I think it's explaining to the patient, you know, if we refer someone for an X-ray for if we're concerned about them coughing up blood, it wouldn't be fair to say to the patient, we're just doing this, you know, we'll, we'll just get an X-ray to check. We don't want to just say we're, we're getting this X-ray because we think there's something bad, but we need to give them a suggestion as to what it is we're looking for and how we're going to interpret maybe a couple of possibilities. So if we find something that's concerning, we'll maybe look for more investigations uh, to look as to why the, the blood's coming from there. If it's completely normal, that's going to be really reassuring and we'll have a chat about how we take it on from there. Yeah. And likewise, I think if we, if we send someone for any kind of imaging, we might be saying, look, this, this is probably going to help us but it's not necessarily going to be the answer as to why um, you've got pain. And it's maybe not going to be the most valuable bit of information. Possibly the stuff that you've told me about how you've tried to adapt going to the gym, about some of the difficulties that you're having at work, about how you've changed your running. Maybe we've got more to work with, with what you told me when I shut up at the start. Maybe you've told me. I think that Osler quote about listen to your patient, he'll, he'll tell you what's wrong with him. Yeah. That's that's maybe the thing uh, to, to kind of go with so that we don't just layer up the value of let's get some imaging because, yeah, as, as you, you probably use these kind of phrases, you know, if, if we x-ray your other knee, we'll probably find something there too. And, you know, that knee's not troubling you too much. Yeah, and I've talked to, I can't remember who I was chatting to about this. I think it might have been Pete Maliaris. Um, I, you know, I can't remember 100%. And he was saying, uh, as I recall, sometimes he ultrasounds the other knee or ultrasounds, the other tendon, to show people that actually, and, and you know, it's much easier to do it with ultrasound because you can just dive in and do the other side rather than an MRI or an X-ray or whatever. But to show that actually these two things aren't that dissimilar, although this one hurts. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is a nice... And, and again, a nice use of, of kind of that, what you, what you were talking about there. It's kind of a, a similar approach. And it's reducing that barrier between clinician and um, consultant, uh, clinician and, and uh, patient, because you're kind of coming down to the patient's way of thinking, and they're coming down to your way of thinking. So you're using a modality that they don't have access to, but you're using it in a way that makes an awful lot of sense to people. Look in real time, as you say. Here, yeah. Here's how the other the other side looks. You're you're bringing someone in, aren't you? And I and I always talk about narrating the assessment process you know, actually being, you know, telling someone what you're doing, telling someone what you're feeling, telling someone what you're finding. And I think that, yeah. you know, rather than just walking around someone, picking things up, putting it down, you know, in terms of legs, wiggling it around and then, and then yeah. kind of leaving someone in the dark to, to what you think and what you've found. Um, and I, I think that what is interesting here is that, you know, I think that is the ultimately what we could describe as person-centered care. Because what you're doing is you're putting yourself in the other person's shoes and saying, what would they, you know, how might they feel sitting here with some dude, um, you know, picking bits up, putting it down, not knowing what the hell is going on. Whereas, you know, actually uh, involving someone in that process, keeping them informed, you know, involving them helps reduce that gap, that distance helps reduce this layer of uncertainty to what this other person's thinking. And as soon as someone, you you know, as soon as you try and imagine what the doctor's thinking, I'm sure you can fill that void with all sorts of crazy stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. As a patient. Yeah. 
it's I think it's really easy for clinicians when you're in a busy clinic where you've maybe got you know, it depends how many people you see, but if you've got 10, 12 patients or whatever coming in in quick succession, they are one of a number of patients you're seeing that day, that morning. But it's sometimes easy to forget how long this person could have been waiting for an appointment. And they have got tons of things that they just want to talk about. And, and as you say, there's got to be a value there. And, and that feeling of this person's really listened to me. And there's a, an element of kind of offloading of all the worries that have been there about what if this is something really bad? Yeah. You know, I've heard about things like bone cancer. I've heard about arthritis. You know, there's all sorts of worries people can have. And it's it's easy to forget how significant the appointment can be when it's one of many you're seeing, often with similar kind of stories that day. And when you're a patient yourself, you get that feeling of, I just want to tell the doctor all, or, or, or physiotherapist, clinician, surgeon, whatever. I just want to tell them all these things. So I think if we don't let people talk about this, as I said, I think that's sometimes the important stuff. Um, I guess another aspect of this as well is sometimes you can have almost the same patient and the way that they ask you what's going on can, can change what you might say about a tissue diagnosis, particularly with the kind of arthritis type presentations where people might say, is it arthritis? And it might be that you want to say to one patient something and then his twin brother something completely different. I guess if someone's got something that's really preoccupying them, that it might be something more serious, you maybe want to validate their symptoms and yeah. give a really firm explanation of, yes, look, here's some sclerosis on your x-ray. Look at these bony changes. These are called osteophytes. These are a really good convincing change that you've got osteoarthritis and we don't need to worry about another cause. This is serious, but there's things that we can do to help. And there's things that we can work with you. There's tons we can do. But it might be to someone else, the twin brother, he said, is it osteoarthritis? And if those changes are quite mild, you might want, maybe want to just downplay it a little bit. You're, you know, just saying, well, yeah, there are some changes there in keeping with degenerative change, maybe more than you might expect to see just with time. But you don't want to kind of kill someone's enthusiasm, because I think as soon as you take away people's hope and that feeling of self-efficacy and autonomy, and I think you, you significantly add to their burden and their, their need to return for um, reassurance, further appointments, when if you can send them away with, with hope that they've got something that they can do for them, and that's, and again, as you've kind of alluded to, that's not one size fits all. That's got to be, you've taken time to listen to the patient, and sometimes it's completely right to say, here's what I can find from examining you, or scanning you, or reading your notes, or putting it all together, and here's exactly what it is. You don't need to worry. Or we're going to get an operation to get something done about it. So there might be a time that that is completely the right thing to do. Um, and I think when we've seen these discussions on, on Twitter recently, I guess one of the things that, that comes out is there's such enthusiasm amongst musculoskeletal clinicians. There's a genuine passion amongst people to, to do this. And people from all sorts of backgrounds talking as though they really enjoy their work. And they obviously like speaking to patients and each other about this type of stuff. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, that has to be a positive, doesn't it? That, that you know, that enthusiasm for, for discussion comes out. And I, and, I, and I don't think we should ever try to, to limit that enthusiasm. You know, I think everyone should be able to have a voice and a, and a stake in that if, if you are dealing with patients. And, you know, I, I think you make a really good point is that I think we do often try to kind of standardise or formalise a lot of what we do, don't we? The information we give, the way we do things. 
um, and maybe a truly patient-centered, person-centered, biopsychosocial-centered perspective is to understand that, you know, information doesn't exist in a vacuum away from um, different people and that two different people might interpret the same information in two different ways. And, and I suppose, is that the art is that the art of the science? Yeah, because because you need you need to have both. I think you need to have a good understanding of the science in order to deploy the art. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I don't. I think the basic science and the understanding of whether it be anatomy, physiology, interpreting images. That, that's a prerequisite and to be sufficiently relaxed so that you can spend the bulk of your appointment just chatting to your patient and then you can get your examination honed down so you can do it really effectively while talking to the patient without having to be constantly thinking about what you're doing so that you're really com comfortable and competent. And again, that's something I suppose I'm striving to do rather than saying I've mastered it. Mm. You've then got the capacity to, to sit back and, and, and do the, the art side of it, to make it comfortable so that it feels like a discussion, so that the patient feels like they can tell you things. Um, and I guess that's something that's becoming increasingly difficult as we do more video appointments. Um, it's, it's harder to have that rapport and that real feeling that you're listening to them, which is satisfying and for you, I don't just mean rewarding from an employment point of view, but you feel like you're getting your job done. Yeah, I think satisfying for the patient that they can feel they can really, okay, I feel comfortable speaking to this person. I can really tell them about my second problem, which is often the main problem as well. So look, what you've said, you know, so far in this discussion is, you know, it resonates with, with me as I suspected it would. Um, but now I'm, now I'm going to get you in trouble, all right? So this is the controversial bit. So, Always you know, yeah. <laughs> right. So <laughs> we've we've kind of discussed this from I, I feel like we've discussed this more from a, you know, so so let's say let's take your hats. Let's put the orthopedic hat to one side. Let's put the GP hat to one side and let's look at sport and exercise medicine. Do your yeah. perspectives in this area change? Because I think sometimes, you know, how you might approach things as a doctor from a GP perspective and then how you might approach it from a sport and exercise medicine perspective. Sometimes they seem appear quite different to me anyway. So how do you integrate that perspective that you've given to me into more of a sports, you know, environment, which we know can be driven a little bit more um, by, by, by maybe a stricter kind of medical approach, if you like. So no, I'm not, I don't want to get you in trouble per se. So just, so just give me your opinion on that without being, uh, with being as controversial as you want. No, I want, yeah, no, let's not do that. Let's water it down a little bit. It's like Twitter. <laughs> you can't be, you can't, I'm giving you the opportunity. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to take this sort of homeopathy approach in Twitter. Take it, dilute it, dilute it, dilute it, check it, look at it the next day and then yeah. send it, but dilute it before you send it. But then it doesn't always, as we know, it doesn't always have an effect the more you dilute it. Look, let's not get into that. <laughs> so just... Uh, just well, um, I guess... 
I guess so my my sports medicine uh, aspect. So I'm I'm not I am someone who's on the as it were the specialist register for sports right. medicine. So um, like a lot of doctors who work in sport, we've done it because we've um, initially had an interest, and then we've many have gone on to get additional qualifications and are maybe working towards further qualifications, which is what I'm doing. So um, yeah, I've worked I've worked in football quite a long time, and I've been really lucky, I suppose, that because as as we said, I had. I've got a few jobs that run at the same time. And at one stage, a couple of years ago, when I was doing my uh, diploma, sports medicine diploma at Bath University, I would have a day that involved an orthopedic clinic in the morning, going to um, the football ground at lunchtime, back in the afternoon for an orthopedic clinic, working in a private MSK clinic in the evening. And then after that, I was studying for my diploma. So apart from it being busy with a capital B, um, I was really lucky that I got to work with so many diverse backgrounds, whether it be the sports scientist at the football team, whether it be the physio who's in the next room and outpatients. I guess I was lucky that so much of my, my training and my working in this, because sports medicine and musculoskeletal often has a non-standard sort of training program, I've been really lucky that I've had exposure to a number of different people. And sometimes I think these people define the role of a doctor within a, a sporting context better than the doctors can themselves. Yeah. Okay. So it's some, I think I read like it was it was a while ago. Someone said that sometimes the sports doctor in the team is the sort of the second best person at everything, and that that makes a wee bit of sense to me. We're we're maybe not the the best physiotherapist. You'd hope not, and I'm not I'm not I'm not the I'm not even the third or fourth best physio at Aberdeen. There's lots of excellent physios, um, but you can contribute a little bit to the discussion with a physio or the podiatrist or even the, if there's a psychologist or a mental health element. So you can add a little bit of that that wraps around what you do there. So I, I think you can, you can bring, by the nature of working in sport, if you work in a non-full-time capacity, you can hopefully bring experience from the type of principles of practice that you use in the NHS, which are going to be different from sport. You might use some of the GP type principles, again, quite different, and you'll pick up things that you've learned formally and informally from other people. So in the very first match that I did, um, the, the physiotherapist then, I think probably just seeing what I knew and trying to give me something to do, said, oh, the player's fallen on his hand. Can you have a look at it? So this was out next to the pitch. It was almost, it was at the end of the game and I just started examining it. And it was just like, oh, I don't know. Just check he's not broken his arm or something, you know. And I said, yeah, I, I, it might, might be your scaphoid. I don't, I don't really know. Um, and I just, I got home and I thought, why did you do that? That was, it was rubbish. It was just, it was hopeless. Why don't you just remove it to a different context and just say, okay, you, you know, you, you've hurt your hand. We can check it in the in the dressing room. Let's just do that. So I think what I found useful was because I maybe at the time most of my work was in GP was to try and take it and change the terms of the interaction to one that's maybe more comfortable for him and for me. So if it has to be done at pitch side, if it's a concussion, a C-spine injury, we've got to do it there, then that's the place to do it. But if it's something else, why not take it to another context that you can you can do it better? Um, but I guess being a bit more specific about the, the question there about uh, you know, meaning things like imaging, how they're used in, in sport. Well, I, I think you you kind of, yeah, I, I think when that maybe from from an outside perspective, I you know, I've done uh, some work in sport myself. Um, but from an outside perspective, you know, it seems like when it comes to sports medicine, 
Um, there aren't that many grey areas sometimes, and the discussion does tend to be quite firm and certain in lots of ways. Um, you know, as, as I say, that would be my interpretation, which I'm completely willing to accept any uh, hurt and upset that I cause and people that I piss off. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was just wondering how you kind of what you started with fits with, 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 with that perspective, because they do seem slightly to me, not at odds, but slightly different. Yeah, so I think there's possibly a lower threshold for getting imaging for professional athletes than there will be for people who are not professional athletes. Now, I think we're, we're probably quite quite lucky that there will be pragmatic discussions with physiotherapists, with the doctor, and we've got, you know, there, there's good relationships there and there's a kind of mutual respect that goes on so that there's an awareness that in people who use their bodies in that Kind of aggressive physical way that there will be incidental findings mm. so finding some tendinopathy on an adductor isn't necessarily going to explain the sudden onset of pain so it's making sure that yes the threshold might be low and you might you, you might be looking to scan things that you wouldn't scan in a in a nhs context but that you're aware that you're looking for things that you can have a specific kind of treatment target for so in, in those areas it's important to make that specific diagnosis, but you still have to step back and say, well, why did someone get this injury? My fear with after the lockdown was that we were going to see lots and lots of stress fractures. Mm. And you can make a really specific diagnosis about a bone stress injury or a stress fracture, but you then need to go back and say, why did the person get this? And that's going to be probably more important because you, you could have a whole team, whether it's a rugby team, a football team or whatever, who'd at risk of having the same injury. And is it because there was something that happened in training? Is it for something to do with the lockdown and the return to normal life? So again, the specificity is important, but it could be too easy just to get bogged down and say, yes, you've had a stress fracture and we can do something very effective about your stress fracture make sure we manage the risk and manage the rehabilitation. But unless we think about the wider influences on that, then we're at risk of, if you like, making the same mistake again. Yeah, and again... So I know that's so obviously true, by the way. So I'm sure that is so page one for a lot of sort of true sports medicine specialists. So I suppose, you know, what, what I hear there is, uh, you know, it, although the threshold is lower for you know more kind of uh, other diagnostic methods that the same level of scrutiny should still exist you know or even an increased level of scrutiny around that as well not just we found something we're going to you know that we found it that's that that's the problem because you know as you described in people who are uh, particularly athletic i think i you know there was a paper that was out a few years ago that was something like 95% of footballers have you know, uh, abnormalities in the hip compared to, you know, people who don't play football. So so we do need to provide the same, or, or you need, not me, you need to provide the same level of scrutiny. But again, you know, that you've put it into context quite nicely, which says just because you have this here, this idea of what it is, you know, that isn't the end. It's why did it happen and what are we going to do about it? And uh, and that that is, is as much part of the discussion as as what it is you know sometimes the discussions that that i see it just tends to be about what is it you know this is this but in the context of of, of working with someone it has to be about why did this happen how can we mitigate risk you know how can we affect prognosis and what to actually do about it 
And I, I think that's that's a wider, uh, a wider discussion. So look, I'm going to go back to. Um, I think you navigated my particularly inflammatory comment quite well there, Greg. You did a good job of uh, of staying on the right <laughs> side of controversial. I've never managed it. I'm far too um, too incendiary. I would say. Um, so, uh, how important to you is is a patient relationship? And what makes a good patient relationship? Because I can sense that, you know, it, it seems to be something that you you, you discuss. Um, yeah, I, 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 well, I, the easy answer is it's really important. You know, that's that's <laughs> probably the, the kind of easy answer. It's yeah. yes, it's really important. And, and yes, but I'm, I'm assuming we, we should try and flesh that out a wee bit more. <laughs> um, I think one angle to take on that, given that we've just talked about sport is, yeah, I think it's I think it's really important to be able to navigate a few different roles within that sporting context. Um, so I think when you when you work maybe with with a team, um, or you I mean like you I, I I train at a boxing gym as well. So you have to be able to if you work with people who will ask you things because you happen to be there and you might know about their injury, or you're there in a professional capacity like you know I, I would be working with a football team. If you're going to spend a lot of time with people, you can't constantly be sitting in that kind of doctor with a beard, tie on, brogues, sitting behind the desk role, but you can't just be kind of one of the boys either. You kind of have to navigate a little bit between shifting between them and being quite comfortable to be being friendly and being part of the team, but also identifying sort of subtle cues from, particularly in that sporting context, where you might need to revert, again, going back to that pitch side scenario, where you want to take it into a very medical set of circumstances, being aware that athletes are maybe going to be suffering from mental health conditions that they might not want to talk about, and they might think that they're going to test the water to speak to you. So you've always got to be mindful, I think, that you've, you've got kind of two hats on. You're part of the team and you can enjoy it and it's good fun. And that's part of the reason people like working in sport. But you have to be ready at the drop of a hat to remove it to another context. Um, I think probably making, a, probably in terms of sort of the, the, the patient relationship, I think the main thing is to listen to people, really. I, I People... People like to be like to, I think, and I'm, I'm going to say people. I can't talk for all people, but I think validating symptoms and validating a presentation and the impact that it has is probably the most important thing. And acknowledging that something is having an impact, um, and that maybe goes full circle round to the the diagnosis is important, but the impact on the person is probably more important. So to be able to sit there, knowing that you're going to be able to do your assessment well, that you've read their notes before they came in. And you can sit there and have the time to sit back and relax and listen to them, demedicalize it to some extent and listen to the whole package as to how this is affecting their life. I think you've probably got that person's trust and attention. And if you've got that and a genuine desire that you want to help people, then that, that's actually what we're here for. There's other bits of our job that, that matter. But if you can show that you, you genuinely care and you can be kind to people, particularly at the moment, if you can do that and say, yeah, this just sounds really crap. You've got, a, you've got a tough situation. No wonder it's hard for you. You know, you're not failing to cope. This is just what, what you're, this is how you're managing. It is genuinely tough. And mirroring it back and saying, you know, I, I think this is hard. No wonder it's difficult. Yeah. And it's trying to put yourself in someone's shoes. And that can be exhausting, as we know. 
because yeah. you're 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 experiencing in a in a, a very diluted way some of the demands that that person could be having in their life. Yeah, and I I, I do think that's a great point to bring up that there is you know, empathy fatigue, isn't there? And there is fatigue from living other people's problems. Um, but, mm. you, you know, I think that validation is something that I've heard most from listening to patient stories where they've turned around and said, this pivotal moment in my journey is when someone said, this must be really tough for you, or this must be frustrating for you, or we actually believe you and, uh, and, and you know, this isn't some mystery problem that's all in your head. This is, you know, regardless of if there is a diagnosis or isn't, you know, your problem is real, it hurts, and it's having a big effect on your life. And I think that's the real value of patient stories. Someone, uh, me, me and Adam on the BCP, we've done a whole list of patient stories, or a whole, uh, a whole series of them. Um, and so I've, you know, really enjoyed just sitting back and listening to someone else's experience without having to do anything about it and without having to, you know, put myself into that role professionally, as you say, because it can be fatiguing. Uh, I saw someone comment on something, a similar situation, say, well, I spend seven hours a day, five days a week doing this. Why would I want to do it and in another situation? Why would I want to listen to patient stories? And I think the point is you can do it in a scenario where it's not your problem if that makes sense you haven't got to do anything about it you haven't got to you can just sit and listen in the truest sense of the word um so so i think that they're, they're they're such such valuable points um do you think that i think that person-centered or patient-centered care from gp perspective is probably quite further along than musculoskeletal actually yeah possibly i, I think that's why i think gps are pretty fairly good background for the, the kind of the musculoskeletal addressing the, the the wider issues. I think it lends itself really well because you, you'll know yourself sometimes if you see someone, at, you know, in a, a physiotherapy context or they come to the GP, the, the ache or pain or injury they've come with is really just the, the, the justification in their mind, the explanation of something organic and tangible that they can come to you about. And, and again, that, that goes back to that you, you have to be able to maybe sit back and say, not just thinking, was there vitamin D low and that led to their stress fracture, but was there just a lot going on? And they've come to me about this today because that in their mind is maybe the explanation or the trigger or the, the justification that they feel that I maybe didn't want to come to, to talk about my sore joint, my back, my patellofemoral pain because of my stress. But now I can say my knee's sore. That, that gives me a reason to, to come in and to, and to talk about it. Um, and I think th those are the times where we need, we need to be able to step back and listen to that, that wider patient story that in fact the musculoskeletal bit is just the bit that people can find an organic explanation for a psychological load that has become a little bit too much for them. And we know with anxiety and things that I, th I think sometimes we make a big mistake a bit like going straight to the x-ray in musculoskeletal, we say, what's worrying the person with anxiety? Well, qu quite often it seems that there isn't really a thing that's worrying about them. And then we, I think we fuel the fire of anxiety by saying, what's worrying you? Because actually sometimes it seems the anxiety itself is causing worry. And then the patient has sought an explanation in their circumstances that justifies and explains their worry rather than it being the anxiety itself. And I think sometimes having a, a joint pain, you know, often, as you know, it'll be backs um, where people feel that they can, okay, I can now go and seek some help because this is sore. That, that explains some of my fatigue, my aches and pains, my stress. 
And I think if we then, again, just focus on the organic side of it, we're going to miss the other burden of things, which in the current climate is going to be massive. And everyone is experiencing a, a load of stress that, um, that is pretty unprecedented, really. Mm. Oh, I mean, I suppose it is the social in the biopsychosocial, isn't it, what we're experiencing at the moment? You know, it's a real, uh, you know, I, I, and there has been discussion around what is the fallout and the outcome going to be from this uh, around around pain. Um, although these things aren't just about pain, are they? As you would probably know from a GP, that they manifest themselves across the health spectrum um, with various illnesses and, and, and kind of more. Um, you know, disease factors. So look, I'm going to ask you one more question, actually. Our time has flown today, which is always a good thing, Greg. Um, so how, I know that you guys did some online stuff. You posted some stuff up on social media about, um, you know, uh, how, how, you, how you start to navigate some of this stuff online. So how do you start, so all these things that we've talked about, you know, about uh, how we work with the person from a wider perspective, explanation, assessment. How do you start to think about some of those factors in an online um, COVID, uh, you know, reflective environment? I hope that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, um, it, it's definitely tough because I think the nonverbal communication stuff there, you know, just the, the, the expressions of empathy and compassion are, are a little bit lost. So I think you you have to consciously think about looking at the person. And um, I know, you know, not looking at, I'm, if I'm looking now, I'm looking at your picture, but looking at the camera, doing things like that. So you can you can actively do things where you're trying to emulate the, the, the face-to-face discussion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Let, <laughs> for those listeners, I stand my chair around. For the for those, yes, uh, obviously, because we're not videoing, we're just uh, audioing. <laughs> so um, I think you, I think you have to do it more actively and think about it. That you're not trying to just copy what you did in a face to face consultation. You're trying to maybe get some of the same outcomes, but but doing it in a different way. Consciously thinking about, I guess, if it was an actor on stage you see the makeup that they wear it would be yeah. ridiculous if you saw them face to face but it works from a distance so i think we have to do things and bear in mind how it looks to the patient at the other end whether it be changing our voice making sure we're seen to be to be listening um but i think i mean in very practical things we've done things like turn the camera around to show the person they're actually it adds a little bit of the kind of the, the face-to-face yeah. stuff i think i try and keep it like light-hearted like isn't this strange that we're meeting like this yeah. But I think ultimately we've sometimes got to say we, we do need to bring some patients in face to face and say and, and and not not exclude that completely because we can't get everything from a, a remote assessment every time. And quite at odds with what I said in that tweet, that the model that we kind of used for a remote examination was very much, you know, looking at things like the shoulder examination, it was trying to pin it down to one of the joints of the shoulder. And I know that's not a model that everyone uses, but it's to try and keep it practical so that there's yeah. some kind of structure that's a little bit easier when you don't, so you don't have to improvise every time. Um, and I say things to patients like, if you copy what I do, if you can see what, if you see what I'm doing on the screen, let's get the same picture on your screen as I've got on mine. But I think it's really hard. And I think you've got to use humour. You've, you've got to, you've got to keep it personal and try and keep it yeah. lighthearted yeah. because it, people have got lots of stress and it doesn't have to be awful every time. 
Yeah, this is something that doesn't have to awful every time. Great. Yeah, <laughs> me and Adam talked about this in a webinar on on Wednesday or Tuesday night, and that really resonates with with what message that we had, which was you know that this is a very impersonal situation. So how do you make it more personal, if that makes sense? And I think this goes back to what you just said as well um, about it's almost overemphasizing, isn't it? It's being aware that there's a barrier. So it's not all, maybe it's not active listening, you know, uh, in a sense, it's overemphasized listening because, you know, you're trying to let that other person, I suppose part of active listening is letting the other person know that there is listening going on. And when you're online, you might have to emphasize that even greater in the same way that on camera, you know, the makeup doesn't look that big. But if you went right up close to the actor, they've probably got makeup caked all over them. Um, and that's totally, a bit yeah. like our facial expressions and things. So, look, I really love that. Maybe we need to move away from this idea of active listening. Um, you know, maybe we need to say there's another layer to it. There's something even more that, that we need to add on to being active. It's active and emphasised, not just active per se. And I, that maybe goes back a little bit to what you said about the about the examination. I think that's that sort of therapeutic value of the examination, yeah. particularly if we if we get like babies in, we we talk through the parent and saying, okay, I've listened to his chest, it sounds good. We checked his heart rate, yeah. that sounds good. But when you're giving the person the reassurance, there is a degree of sort of theatre in it. It's not invented, and you're not doing things that are pretend, yeah. but you're adding something so it's overt, so that there's a confidence in anything that you can say. And if you're saying to a parent that, again, we went, we, we talked about this the other day, saying we might not be able to tell you which virus it is. I haven't got a clue, to be totally honest, but it doesn't seem like it's meningitis, which is the thing that you were worried yeah. about. It's we have listened to Jeff. We've yeah. examined him head to toe. His yeah. heart rate, his breathing rate, his temperature. And I think, as speaking as a parent, I'd find that really reassuring that the doctor or the, the nurse practitioner, whoever's examined my, my child, can then say, okay, that's fine. You've taken away the big worry and you've managed, and I think that if they've managed to do that kind of slightly theatrical aspect, but again, it's not without value. It's you being confident in what you've done and them being confident in what you've done because it's it's been overt. Yeah, it's so overt and emphasis. I think they would be two yeah. really good words. That So really you're, you're trying to minimise ambiguity because ambiguity is uncertainty. And, you know, I, I think that, that we need to, and that's where it comes into, you know, walking a mile in someone else's shoes or looking at the world through someone else's eyes is realising that ambiguity can exist and that if we minimise that, we're probably going to reduce some of that uncertainty and we're probably going to have a person who's more informed, less worried, and we're going to hopefully have a better outcome. But look, you've given me some really important food for thought there. You know, just, you know, I love the analogy of kind of it being like an actor on a stage, not from a you're making it up perspective, but just from this making it overt, you know, emphasising these important points that are going to have a real important effect on people. Look, so I, I think we've been talking for, for a fair while. We could probably talk uh, even more. We had a couple of questions that we didn't get to. Sure, sure. But Greg, you, you've uh, you know you've you, you've given me some food for thought, and you've uh, provided some real value in the last hour. You know, on on the podcast so far, we've had psychologists, uh, occupational therapy. So having a, a doctor, GP uh, kind of perspective again just provides an, this other layer, doesn't it? That that helps us become more well-rounded practitioners. You know, from the end of the, I think most of the listeners are going to be musculoskeletal to this. 
Um, but, you know, again, it's that integration, that interaction, and this appreciation and understanding of different perspectives and views, I think that makes us all better. So, so thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's. I think there's a huge overlap. The Venn diagram, where there's a genuine sort of passion, interest, and lots of people seeing the same kind of challenges, but from different angles. Yeah. And if you know, I, th I think that's that's a positive thing. There's so much to to learn from each other. Yeah, I'm a bit annoyed that you sidestepped my more controversial question. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm. Uh, you've hurt my heart a little bit with that. I was hoping for some fireworks, and you know, maybe you'd get in trouble. And anyway, but yeah. But you know, I've been planning all week to not get into trouble. So yeah, I mean, you've done was, well, mate. You've sidestepped. <laughs> I, I yeah, sidestepped it, slipped it, and counted. It <laughs> yeah, exactly. You did a little bob. You did a little weave. I liked it. Shifted your weight. Came back with the right hand. I'm impressed. It was nice. Yeah, it was, a, it was a backhand, and you just didn't see it. It's the punches you don't see. Oh, like Kel Brook at the weekend. He got taken out by Terence Crawford with that shot that he didn't see. Yeah, he just stepped into it, didn't he? Yeah, they hit, yeah, Crawford came in, he stepped in, didn't see it, short little right hook off the southpaw, away you go. Um, but you didn't get sucked in, which sickens me slightly. But anyway, Greg, <laughs> um, like, I, I really appreciate uh, your passion, your perspective, uh, and, you, you know, your uh, enthusiasm and energy and knowledge that you brought today. So thank you very much, and I hope that we continue to have some good discussions. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was great speaking to you. I found it really enjoyable. Thank you. You have been listening to the Core Kinetic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next time.